This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You did hear, of course, that earlier this week there was um, a shooting at the home of Pat Musitano. His brother Angelo was shot and killed, was assassinated, was gunned down earlier. And now all of a sudden we've got a seemingly, seemingly a second stage in whatever this is that's going on. And you know that part, and I know that if you listen to Bill Kelly earlier this week, if you listen to Scott Thompson's show earlier this week, there was a lot of discussion about this particular event. I want to take it a little further, though. I want to look forward now, because it seems that if we've now got more, one incident is an incident. More than one incident is seemingly, to me anyway, a pattern or at least a suggestion that maybe we're talking about something bigger. James Dubrow is an award-winning crime writer who's covered the world of organized crime for years and years and years. We've had him on the show before. He is a great guest. He is a knowledgeable man. He joins us now. James, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, Let me start with the stupidest possible question I could think of to lead off with this evening. Any chance at all that the fact that it was Musitano's house that was shot up was just a coincidence and it was aimed at someone else? Uh, highly unlikely, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was thinking, okay, it was a drive-by, and oops, wrong house, the wrong house to choose, I suppose. But it seems very unlikely. No, that that, that that's um, a bit of a stretch. Now they 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 clearly know who it was, and uh, obviously it was uh, a warning and uh, part of a of a hit team that was working to get rid of. Of the Mustana family. Well, now you just touched on two different possibilities, though. Yeah. Do you believe that this was a warning alone, or do you believe this was an attempt to do something more than that? Well, I think it's sending a direct message to Pat Musitano, who, who isn't the brightest uh, person in the world, uh, although he's you know been a, a mob boss since his father died in '95. Um, he uh, it's sending a message to him that his days is is running a um, a mafia family in Hamilton involved in cocaine and sex trade and various other things is very likely over. He's got a lot of rivals, uh, a lot of rivals even in the Italian community in the Andrangheta mafia world. Um, there's a newer family in that area that's probably uh, aching to get rid of Musitani. See, he's part of the last of the old ilk but he isn't the classy part of that old deal. You know, his father was Dominic, but he never really had much time to train. He he took over, and within a year or two, he was ordering assassinations of leaders of a number of other families, including two that he had his hitmen carry out. And that was not very well planned or very well done. So it caused a lot of ripples. He eventually went to jail for that. But right now, it seems in Hamilton, there's a definite. Uh, mood and message that the Musitano family has had its day. Is there, okay, um, what do you, so does, is this the last then, or do you think that this is just a, a, because back when it was, it was Angelo who was killed, there was thought that, okay, maybe this was just something that was cleaning up some old business that somebody maybe felt they still had to take care of, and maybe this was going to be a one-off, but when it happens like this a second time, as I said in the lead-in, it, it would seem to me that it would be reasonable to think there might be another shoe to drop. Right. Well, you remember when we talked uh, then about two months ago uh, about Angelo, and, and I thought that the first person who, a retaliation for what had happened, you know, the various hits put on the people killed and the people proposed to be killed, that that would be Pat, not Angelo. But it looks like they were trying to get at Angelo. Sorry, get it, Pat, through Angelo. So that makes sense. Um, but it wasn't clear that they wanted the Musitanos out. This is clear. Obviously, Pat Musitano knows who's behind this. He knows who the candidates are, whether it's within the Indrangheta or whether it's um, in another organized crime group in Hamilton. There are several others that are powerful in his areas, whether it's uh, over... Drug turf, and I'm putting a lot of possibilities there because we don't quite know which group is behind this. But it's pretty certain that the message is to is to get out. Now, doesn't mean he has to die. Um, he could, uh, you know, uh, arrange a deal where he quietly retires or leaves Hamilton or Ontario. Uh, it's unlikely. It's not in his DNA to do that sort of thing. 
He could also, he has the option of working with the police to ensnare these people that are out to get his family. But I don't think he'd do that either, because he, he's not a... Um, He's not the type to be a stool pigeon for the police, even though this would be a one-off. You know, it's been done before by mafia leaders, including Paul Volpe. That's how he saved his life in in uh, the 80s. By before he was killed, a few years before he was killed, he saved his life by cooperating with the RCMP on a one-off operation. They later tried to recruit him as a as a major uh, RCMP plant, but they wouldn't. They, they, he decided not to do that. And, RCMP didn't want him, really. They didn't want a top gangster as their informant. So he does have options. It's not just that he's going to be killed. And I think right now he's surrounded by his loyal soldiers, if you will. And, uh, you know, he's got he's on his guard. So I don't think anything's going to happen this week or this month, necessarily, or next month. But it's, 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 it's there. Now, the other thing is retaliation. Uh, there hasn't been any sign of retaliation yet, but we don't know. It's a secret world, you know. Well, the, you know, the amazing thing about this is that most of us, and again, I think you and I talked about this last time we chatted, most of us, our exposure to this, 99.9% of us, our exposure to this is through the Godfather movies or through right. the casino or any Robert De Niro or whatever. Um, this actually starts to sound an awful lot like what we see on the screen. There's, there's an awful lot of pieces here that you say, oh, yeah, this is kind of what I'm used to watching. All right. Well, The Godfather itself is, is a brilliant novel and film in terms of a composite of the world of organized crime. That's what it was. Mario Puzo did a lot of work on that. And a lot of that Godfather stuff is very important to the imagination and, and the way criminals operate. You know, it's... it's uh, you know, the scene of the, uh, and the godfather of them shooting up uh, Al Pacino and Diane Keaton's house, very much like the shoot-up of Pat Musitano's house the other day, uh, when Pat Musitano went after the heads of the various families. That's very much like a scene in The Godfather where he decides to wipe out all the families in one day. So art does imitate life, and life imitates art. It's all part of... Uh, Part of the goes, and it's possible to negotiate a uh, an exit, although very hard. And I don't think it would hold. I don't think they would trust him. So eventually, I think he will end up dead. But um, we, time will tell, of course. And uh, let's hope that no innocent people are killed. I mean, his... well, that's that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. Is that the, there are people when people when Angelo was killed, the neighbors were spooked, and I, I think justifiably so. That's not something you see on your street all the time. And now this one. Yeah. How as crazy as it sounds, because we're talking about gunfire going off, but how yes. careful are the people involved in these things that they don't get other people in the crossfire? Well, yeah, that's a good question because you know, hitmen, professional hitmen, aren't all that careful. They try to be because they don't want to bring heat on their, on themselves and the, and the people they're working for. But um, we've seen all sorts of hits go, professional hits go crazy. I mean, Louise Russo was killed in a, in a shop because. She was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're trying to. The so-called professional hit team was trying to kill a uh, hitman from Italy, and they totally botched that up. Uh, so these things, you know, and and the, and the Angelo hit, you know, they they could have easily involved one of his, his kids or his wife right at his home. Uh, this thing the other day at Pat's house could have easily a stray bullet could have hit his wife. Um, we just don't know, you know. I mean, professional hits aren't that professional is what I'm trying to say. And you can't, I know the police say it's a targeted hit and therefore the public isn't in danger, which is true. But even in targeted hits, they make mistakes. And particularly the bomb, you know, if they really wanted to do some serious damage, there would have been a bomb, bombing of his house the other night. Um, or they would be watching him very closely and get him when he's in his car or at one of his businesses. Um they know they, if they watched him professionally for a while, they would be able to figure out what restaurant he goes to. Uh, actually, he has a piece uh, of ownership in some restaurants in Hamilton. Uh, they would be able to figure out where he's going and uh, and get him, hopefully, in a spot where it's not endangering other people, but you can never guarantee that, never. Just before I let you go, James, um, it seemed as though... For the longest time, I mean, Hamilton, obviously, everybody knows Hamilton has a long past with families and, and this kind of thing. And then it went very, very, very quiet. And now this all of a sudden, does this indicate that the 
that world has been more active around here than we've noticed? Or does it just indicate that someone's decided that now is the time to begin ramping things up again? I think it's the latter. I, I think it's, a, it's now is the time for a shift in, in power. You know, I mean, the, the really good organized criminals, even in Hamilton, are quiet. They're not necessarily loud in the street like Musitano has been over the years or Papalier or some of the others. They're quiet people that do go about doing their drug business, go about doing their stripper business, their whatever business they're in, gambling that brings revenues to organized crime. They don't want a lot of attention on themselves. And therefore, I would say that uh, maybe it's an attempt to seize control away from the louder people and a uh, spent force in, in, in the uh, guise of the Musitano family. He still has a few people around him because he's been around a long time. You know, his whole life has been in crime. I don't think he knows any other life. It's his total DNA, organized crime. You know, so he's not as if he can just leave it. And they don't think he'd do it anyway. So I think he'd probably fight. James Dubrow, a crime writer who has covered this world for a long time. James, I appreciate the time as always tonight. Thanks for doing this. Nice to talk to you, Scott. Take care. This, you know, it's almost, it's almost unbelievable when you listen to James talk. And I don't know this world. I don't think most people know this world. I don't think most. And so you listen to James and you're going, wait a second. What? That can't all be real, right? Because, again, that's like Hollywood. That's that's the stuff that you watch in the movies. I, I'm ta- I, I get James has covered it. James has been around it. I haven't. I just I sit there with my jaw open to a lot of the stuff and going, really? This is this really happens. This is real. And I mean, obviously, when something like this happens this week or a couple months ago when his brother was killed, I mean, yeah, it's pretty darn real. Start having bullets fired into a house in the middle of the night is pretty darn real. But it just seems almost implausibly unlikely, I- impossible that this stuff actually, actually happens. And and I suppose that there are a lot of people who have been living in this city for a lot longer than I have that would say, uh, you are so naive. We've seen this for generations. Well, Okay. Let's hope that, I mean, let's hope that it stops. Is that, is that what we hope for? I guess. I don't know what you hope for. What's the one thing I never asked James is what's the best possible outcome of this? I don't know what the best possible outcome of this is. I suppose the best possible outcome is that everything just quiets down and goes away and no one hears anything more about it. And certainly no bystanders or anyone else gets killed. I guess I say it's it just I sit here and I listen to this stuff and I go I just I, I find it very difficult find it very difficult to believe that all this is actually real all the stuff that we hear about that's going on apparently percolating and bubbling under the surface but we get these hints every once in a while that yep something's going on you don't see it you don't know about it but something's going on you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML You may have heard that earlier this week, the Ontario government, well, they've been going after this for a while now. There's been a lot of discussion since really, since, I mean, they talked about it before, but really since about last August. Do you remember what happened last August in the entertainment world? Tragically Hip, ring any bells? Yes. Tragically Hip had their farewell tour, remember last year? And because of the great interest in the Tragically Hip and Gore Downey and all the rest, tickets were exceptionally hard to come by. Now, you knew they were going to be anyway. It was his farewell tour across the country. But what really steamed some people's asparagus was the fact that ticket bots, computer programs, were snatching up a lot of the tickets. And then those same seats that fans couldn't get their hands on were showing up on secondary sales websites basically modern-day scalpers. Once upon a time, if you're old enough to remember this, if you ever went to a Toronto Maple Leafs game, for example, at Maple Leaf Gardens, the way you scalped was there you would get out of the subway at Dundas or at college, depending which subway stop you got off at, and you would have to walk the gauntlet along Carlton Street there towards Maple Leaf Garden, and there would be scalpers all over this. Who needs tickets? Who's got tickets? Who's buying? Who's selling? All that stuff. 
that that was scalping. Now scalping is like everything else, modernized, computerized, roboticized. So things get a little bit more complicated. And this has been going on for a while now, but again, it was really the tragically hip concert. I won't call it a fiasco, but the concert situation that led to people being really whipped into a frenzy. And then the government saying, Hey, look, a populist thing to get involved with. Yes, we are against that. We are, we are with you, Ma and Pa Ontario. We stand with you against the idea of someone scalping tickets to you. Wait a second. What? You spent the money on it anyway? Well, we're still with you. Okay. So that's where this thing really started to get legs. And so now the government has said that it is going to be cracking down on this. It's going to be working to really take action to stop companies from being able to buy concert tickets and resell them to you at a higher price. Which for a lot of people probably sounds, yes, that's really good. I'm really glad that our government is doing that because boy, I hate paying more than face value, more than wholesale for my concert tickets. Right? You may have said that yourself or for your sports tickets or whatever else. But here's where I start to get confused in this whole process of why our government is getting involved in this. And again, I've said this many times on this show, I am someone who is in favor of the least amount of government intervention possible. I'm not anti-government. I just think that the government gets into way too many things it has no business getting into. And here's why I think this is one of those areas. If you wanted to go buy, U2 was in Toronto this week. If you wanted to go buy a U2 ticket, you might've been able to get online and buy the ticket, but if you couldn't, or if you forgot the tickets were going on sale, 10 AM, whatever day or whatever else, and then you had to go to one of the secondary places, you're probably fuming and you're going, ah, why am I paying this much money? Here's why the government, this is, this is why this makes it unique and why this is weird. And I don't get this. When you went to the grocery store this week to buy milk, do you think that the price you paid at the grocery store was the price the grocery store paid the supplier for that milk? No, there was a markup. There was, the middleman was there and the middleman marked up the price because the supplier makes the product and sells it to the distributor, the grocery store, and they then sell it for a higher price. So everybody makes money on this thing. And I don't recall ever anyone saying, we need our government to get rid of grocery stores so I can buy my milk directly from the cow. I don't think I've ever heard that. But don't just stop at milk. What about every other product that you buy? Every time you walk through the doors of Costco, do you think Costco exists merely as a way station so the producers of products can place their products on Costco's shelves and Costco sells them to you at the exact price that the supplier came up with. And so Costco really, as we all know, is simply a nonprofit venture that is here only to help the public. Is that right? No, of course that's not right. And there's nothing wrong with Costco making money. But Costco exists. Costco takes a product or actually thousands of products, pays a certain price for those products, adds cost to those products, puts that on the sticker, and you pay the Costco price. The supplier gets their money, Costco gets their profit, and you get your item. Cars, furniture, food, restaurants. Restaurants, perfect example. Do you think that restaurants get their steaks from the supplier and sell you the steak for the price plus whatever exact amount it costs for the labor to cook that steak? No. You ever, have you ever, have you ever gone to a decent restaurant and seen what the prices are for the food? You are paying a lot of money of markup and we don't complain about any of these things. 
in every other facet of our life in this world, we accept that there is going to be a markup. And we don't have a problem. Well, maybe we do have a problem with it, but we realize that that's just what is the reality. And if you really, really are opposed to that, if you're really offended by that, if you really can't stomach the thought of paying the extra little bit for your bag of milk or carton of milk, I suppose you probably could drive to someone's farm or some wholesaler and buy your milk right there. Now, you may have to drive 50 or 60 miles. Yeah, Will is pulling the udders on the other side of the glass. I'm not actually suggesting they make you go to work honking on the teats there to get the, uh, to get the milk out, I, you know, and you take it home in an old jar, that, that's, you know, I don't know how your milk is going to taste if you do that. Maybe just lie down on your back and fill up while you're there. Just open your mouth and, okay, I've had enough milk for this week. Thanks very much. But no, you could probably drive 50 or 60 kilometers to find somewhere that produces milk and away you go. But we don't do that because we accept that in every area of the market, there is markup. Every stage along the way has a markup. That's why, think about this one for a second. That's why when you go to a wholesale distributor or a, a, uh, one of those places, what do you call them down in like Niagara Falls or whatever, the, uh, where the, the, the companies, the supplier has their own store, an outlet. That's why prices are lower because you're cutting out the middleman. But for everything else, we are okay with the fact that the market works, capitalism works, the way the free enterprise market works is that supplier sells to distributor, distributor sells to customer, everybody makes a little bit along the way. But for some reason, we have decided that we don't accept that when it comes to tickets. We don't accept that. We believe somehow, and apparently now the government believes as well, although I don't really believe the government believes anything. I think the government believes whatever it feels like is going to get them votes. But regardless, the government now apparently believes that you are entitled. It's a basic human right that you can get concert tickets at face value. That is a human right. Human rights, clothing, food, shelter, clean water, maybe education, and At-cost concert tickets. Those are United Nations, when they put out their list of basic human rights, go tell those folks in Africa who are starving right now, who are in the middle of a famine, that they have basic human rights like you and I, and included in that are at-cost concert tickets when things get better. I mean, come on. But that's what we're talking about here. We've decided that somehow this is one of the things, this is one of the mountains that we are going to die on. Frank writes in and basically points out, what about the entrepreneur who takes all of his business overseas and is working with sweatshops and making money off the backs of impoverished people? Well, that's a, that is, I have huge problems with that, but at the same time, that's a slightly different topic from what we're talking about, because even then we're still talking about the same model. That's a that is potentially, depending on what companies are paying and how they're doing it, that is a potentially immoral, unethical way to do things, potentially. But the fact still is the supplier makes his or her product, sells it to the distributor who sells it to the people. Everybody gets a markup. So I'm looking at this and I'm just trying to understand why it is that we think that this is the one thing, concert tickets, tickets, period, tickets to go see something, entertainment is the one hill that we're going to die on with this one. When do we turn around now? Because look, this worked. This worked. The government jumped at this one. Think about this one for a second. This worked. So you now should be able to rise up as a people. We all should and say, I refuse. I think it's wrong that I have to pay a markup for milk. I think that my grocery store should have to sell me the milk at the price that it paid. Well, they'll never do that. Rick writes in, your analogy works if there's a limited supply of milk. 
All right. So he's saying because there's more milk than like concert tickets, there's only a certain number of them. And Rick makes a valid point. However, that's not always the point because there are often times when things are in short supply. And what happens when those things are in short supply? What happens? What do the distributors do when something is hard to find? Anybody? They raise the price. What happens? What happens when gasoline is in shorter supply? Prices go up. So Rick is correct when he writes in and says, yes, but there's an unlimited supply of milk. So they should, they don't, they don't do this. But you go through the market, again, tickets, yeah, there's a limited supply, so prices go up. Go back, I don't know, how many years ago was it that, I'm trying to think, and again, I'm probably dating myself here, but you may remember this. Many of you will remember the Christmas that was probably 15 years ago. There's been other examples since. This is the one that comes to mind. When Tickle Me Elmo was the toy, everybody had to get a Tickle Me Elmo. I never quite understood. The thing drove me nuts. But the fact was, Tickle Me Elmo was the toy that every single kid had to get. So, when you went to a store, many stores anyway, what happened to Tickle Me Elmo prices? Up they went because supply and demand. That is what we are chatting about here. That is what we're talking about. So, there, your Rick is right. There is a limited supply of concert tickets compared to milk, but that makes it even more comparable Because limited supply, supply and demand, it's basic, simple economics and in no other part of life. Don't stick with Tickle Me Elmo's, don't stick with concert tickets, don't stick with anything else. Pick anything else. What, if you have a particular fruit or vegetable that is out of season, that is hard to get, try and buy strawberries off season in Ontario or blueberries or whatever else. How much do they cost? Do they cost the same off season as in season? They cost tons more if it's off-season because they are harder to get. There's less supply. You have to bring them in, but there's still demand. And so you pay a lot more money for food items, fresh food items, when they are out of season. That's exactly the same thing as we are talking about here. And so I'm not arguing that I love the idea of scalpers or robots or bots or computer programs to buy up all the tickets. I'm not arguing for that. I'm simply saying, I'm not sure this is the, the this is the one area of the market that the government should be sticking its nose in and saying, yes, we're going to fix this. If you're going to fix this, I really believe you have to be looking at the whole thing and I don't believe you should be getting into it at all. This is how business works. If you start getting into it here, why can't you get into the milk sale system? Why can't you get into the Tickle Me Elmo world? Why can't you get into the fresh fruit and vegetable world and say, we have to keep prices down for the people? Well, you know what happens then? We're going to be seeing the economy and jobs and businesses go under because wait a second, if I can't be the reseller of this stuff, every grocery store would have to shut because no grocery store is going to operate as a philanthropic thing just to exist, to make no money, to be a nonprofit at least not many that I know of, people have jobs, people have livelihoods. They have opened a grocery store to make a living, a restaurant, a car dealership, a furniture store, whatever else. Only concert tickets, only concert tickets seem to be here. One more email. Norm says, you're missing the point. What if Costco bought all the milk that there was? All right, Norm, I give you that one. That way, if the concert bots, if the secondhand secondary sales market was buying all the mill, all the tickets, I would be a law. I would be on side with you then. If, if the public could get no tickets, I would say you're absolutely correct, but the public can get tickets. It's just, they can't get all the tickets. Some of them are purchased up by the robots and others. So again, it's a, it is a It's an interesting one that the government has decided on this particular one that they're going to dive into it, but not other places. I'd love to keep hearing from you. We're getting lots of emails pouring in on this one. Lots of ideas, lots of thoughts on this one. Now, Norm says, one more thing that Norm says, then I got to go. Of course, he says, if consumers would smarten up and refuse to pay the crazy prices, simple economics would drive them out of business. Aha! 
Norm, you are a genius. That is how you solve this problem. You do not have a government get in and try and meddle around in it because it's only going to make things more complicated. What happens is you allow the secondary ticket people who now have 5,000 tickets in their possession to say, to be stuck holding those tickets. And you do that for two or three concerts when they're now losing tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And guess what they're going to stop doing? That is called the way the market works, supply and demand. By the way, Frank wraps it up by saying, what does a cow have to do with all this? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The vacationing, by the way, Rick Zamperin, you may have noticed you haven't heard Rick on the radio here 9 or 10 or 12 hours a day for the last few days. That's because he's been on vacation resting. Rick, how's it been? It has been uh, quite enjoyable. I have uh, chopped down uh, basically a tree in my backyard. I have uh, gone to the dentist. I have uh, rearranged some bricks in my uh, backyard patio area. It has been a productive week off. Yeah, productive, but you said it's been enjoyable. That sounds horrible. That's, that's like a horrible lineup of the a week off is supposed to be sitting in the backyard, sipping a cool drink, reading some like cheesy book or something and watch catching up on Netflix. You're Paul Bunyan. I, I Paul Bunyan'd my backyard uh, tree. <laughs> I Daniel Boone did. Daniel Boone. And did you put your kids to work at least? Did you did you create some slave labor so they had to you know, you want to live here, kid, you're gonna work. Yeah, they've they've helped here and there. Not uh, mostly my son. My my daughter is doing the you know in the backyard watching the Netflix on her phone type thing. But uh, yeah, my son has been uh, a little bit more helpful. Well, <laughs> at least mentally you've had a break because you are on here all the time. So um, anyway, we've taken you away from your vacation. But the reason I wanted to do that is because I was thinking who who could actually have the sports contacts that they could deal with this stuff. And uh, you're right at the top of that list. So here's what we're going to talk about. This, of course, is the 150th birthday. We've talked about this all week. Canada's 150th birthday from Confederation, just in case there are those who are saying, no, no, we're older than that. Just ask the Indigenous people. Okay, get you. From Confederation, it's our 150th birthday this weekend. And so we're going to chat about for a second and try to figure out what is the greatest ever sports moment or moments that we've ever had in this country. And Rick, I said before you came on here that the easy answer that a lot of people are throwing out there as a default is Paul Henderson. Uh All right. That's the easy one, right? That's the one that everyone will, that's the first one that's going to come to everyone's mind, correct? Uh, I totally agree. And I, you know, I compiled the top five list and that grew to 10 and that grew to 15 (laughs) and it's like plus 20 uh, different moments uh, or achievements and I started with that one, to be honest. You know, I wrote. How do you not? Five. Well, I, yeah. How do you not? I mean, it's it's. I think still to this day, the most iconic, uh, historic, uh, almost uh, nation solidifying kind of moment in our history. It's you know, it's our game. It was East versus West, communism versus freedom. Uh, it, it, you know, the the whole rallying point being down three games to one. You know, going to a foreign land and, you know, the whole Phil Esposito speech and, you know, the the, the monumental game-winning goal against, uh, you know, the former USSR. It was, just, I think, top to bottom. Uh, so many juicy, interesting, uh, and in many cases for a lot of these players, life-altering moments that, uh, yeah, how can you not start with the, the 72 Summit Series and the Henderson goal? I will, I will say that by the end of our discussion, that is going to be at or near the top, but I'm going to save what my other one is because I have one that I would argue I would put ahead of that one, okay. but we'll get to that in a second. Also, okay, tell me what was on your list as well. Start going, because I've got a list, but let's go down your list first. Give me some of the ones that you wrote down as possibilities that you thought maybe should at least be in the discussion as our iconic sports moments. Well, I wrote down a number of honorable mentions, so maybe I'll start with those. Go. Uh, and they include Greg Joy, silver medal at the 76th Montreal Olympics. Which is uh, which is great, well, which is memorable because, A, we were so horrible in Montreal yeah. at the Olympics. We were the first country ever to host an Olympics and not win a gold medal. A gold but medal, yeah. the other reason for people, and you and I are probably at the bottom end of the age bracket that would remember this, but every night when the TV would go off and CBC mm-hmm. would play O Canada... And they would go to the, 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 the what do you call it, the to- like the color thing there. The, yeah. the, but the last thing you saw was Greg Joy jumping over the high jump bar in Montreal and yeah. celebrating. So that became yeah. an iconic image. You're right. 
Yes. Um, Jacques Villeneuve winning the Formula mm. One Championship in 1997. Uh, a lot of individual honors. You know, Steve, Steve Nash, two-time NBA MVP. It wasn't really a moment, but a, a collection of moments. Uh, Fergie Jenkins winning the 71 yes. NL Cy Young Award. Larry Walker, the first Canadian to be named an MVP. That happened in 97. He's okay, hold on a sec. Great oh, point. Okay. Great point. Uh, that year that Larry Walker had, I think I think it was the same year, but had his best year was the year that Jacques Villeneuve also had his year. And yeah. Jacques Villeneuve won the Lou Marsh Award as Canadian Athlete of the Year over Larry yeah. Walker. Did you agree with that? Well, and at the time, the great debate was, you know, is Jacques Villeneuve an athlete because he's driving a car? So, I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of people, a lot of Canadians, were giving more credit to the car as opposed to Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, I think the prestige of F1 globally is much greater than Major League Baseball. There's no doubt about that. So I think that maybe gave him the edge, being the first and only Canadian to do so uh, in, in more of a global kind of sport. I think that, that probably gave him the edge. But, I mean, Larry Walker to be the first baseball player from this nation to be a uh, an MVP. I mean, that, that says a lot. You can't take anything away from Larry Walker. So, yeah, I do kind of agree that Villeneuve deserved that Lou Marsh Award in 97, but uh, you know, I, I can't take anything away from Larry Walker. He had a phenomenal year that year. See, I still think it was a sham that Jacques Villeneuve won that thing because I'm of those. I'm of the opinion that it was the car doing the work. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it was doing a lot of the work. And so, I, again, and, I, and to understand, I mean, even playing in Colorado where the air was thin, hitting a baseball as he was doing yeah. is the hardest thing ever. But uh, nonetheless, all right, so your list is great so far. Keep going. Yeah. So yeah, other honorable mentions. We're still in the honorable mention. We're not even in the top ten. Let no. The top five. Uh, I have James Naismith inventing a sport. He invented basketball in 1891. I mean, that, that is uh, a phenomenal achievement. Um, so that's on my honorable mentions list. Uh, the 89 Grey Cup, I know Ticats fans weren't big fans of uh, the end result, but I think it's, it's, it's gone down as the pinnacle of all Grey Cups, the most exciting. Also, how come first- nobody, by the way, how come nobody ever asks Kent Austin about that now these days? You've, you, people can ask him every single day about that game because yeah. they, they hated him back then. <laughs> Nobody even brings it up anymore. A lot of people still hate him to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they don't bring it up. Yeah, probably. That, that was also the first great cup at, uh, at Skydome, now Rogers. Yes, so. yes, you're right. Uh, Kurt Browning at the 88 Worlds, the mm. first figure skater to complete a quad. Opened a lot of eyes and I think changed the sport, so I think that was you know, an, uh, an achievement in itself. Donovan Bailey winning 100-meter gold in 96. Uh, ben Johnson doing it in 88, although, you know, obviously a different result afterwards. Now let me stop and, you again for a second. Let me stop yeah. you. Of those two, you, I, I guarantee you that you watched both of those as they yes. happened live. Yes. Leaving aside for a moment what happened after Ben Johnson's race, yeah. which one of those two races at the moment had you more excited? Hands down, without question. Not even a close argument in my mind. It was Ben Johnson. See? It was, it was I, I think it was late at night. It was uh, very late, on was, a Saturday, I think. Yeah, it was, you know, Seoul, you know, a different, uh, you know, a different time, um, a, a different place. And it was Carl Lewis on the other side, <laughs> uh, with, you know, with Big Bad America. Uh, and he not only won the race, but in 979 at that time, an unheard of time in the 100 meters. And he was so fast and so ahead of anyone else. Uh, I just remember I was in my parents' living room, just jumping up and down, seeing the time, an Olympic and world record by far. You know, Donovan Bailey's win in 96 was tremendously exciting. But uh, I think a step or maybe even two below Ben Johnson. Yeah, you know, you, you I feel the same. I, I felt, oh, I feel exactly the same. I thought that, and maybe it was because Donovan Bailey that I recall anyway, didn't really have a hated rival. He, right. The Americans, just in general for the relay, were the hated rival, but it was Donovan Bailey. We just wanted to see him win. But Ben Johnson, I mean, Carl Lewis was despised. Carl Lewis was like Lex Luthor to Ben Johnson Superman <laughs> up here in Canada. Yeah, totally. We hated Carl Lewis. And wanted, and every single Canadian wanted nothing more than to see that annoying smirk wiped off his face. Mm-hmm. And, and so and when he, he won, probably, and, and even arguably to this day, might be you know aside from Michael Phelps and the dominances he he's had in the pool, but Carl Lewis might be one of the most dominating Olympic athletes in the history of the Olympics. I mean, he was that good. It wasn't just track. I mean, 
he did the long jump uh, and won many medals in that sport too. And he was, you know, he had that charismatic, uh, charismatic style, uh, that that uh, that flashy smile. But he was an arrogant guy, oh, yeah. and, uh, and and was hated for it. Keep going. You got these are great. I got one more honorable mention, and a lot of people are probably going to raise their eyebrows at this one. Uh, Penny Alexiak, just last year. Yeah. No. Yeah. And becoming the first Canadian to win four medals in Olympic Games. So that's, a, I think, a pretty good list of honorable mentions. No kidding. And and I would say that if you went, and how many of those are in the last 20 years? Like, if you had put Penny yeah, Alexiak, them, yeah. put Penny Alexiak 25 years ago, she is right at the top of that list. Yeah. Right at the yeah. top of that list. Anyway. And I don't want to take any way, uh, you know, anything away from any of those achievements because they are, you know, phenomenal, no doubt about it. Uh, so top ten, ten down to six. Let's let's count them down. Okay. Uh, at number ten, the 2012 Canadian women's soccer team winning the bronze in London. in London. Now, was so it no, winning the bronze or was it the game against the Americans? Well, I mean, the game against the Americans, I, I think they lost four to three in uh, in extra time, and I mean that was the game of the ages. Uh, and they got robbed, and Christine Sinclair had the hat-trick in that game, and it was just a uh, an unbelievable experience and and a crushing defeat at the end of at the end of it all for the Canadians. But to come back and then win the bronze, I think it was a tremendous feat. And I think that was the first, at least in terms of Summer Olympics, the first team medal in like sixty or seventy years or something to that effect. I, I can't remember the year. I think you're right. 20s, I think I think you're right. Um, but uh, for them to have that, you know, that so-called intestinal fortitude to come back and win the bronze. Uh, in the next game is just a phenomenal achievement. And when have we ever, and I'm not being sarcastic and I'm not being belittling, when have we ever cared that much, honestly, across the country about a women's, a woman's team? And I, again, the times have changed. I mean, they certainly have changed. We now care deeply about our women's hockey team yeah. Oh, yeah. and all these, but I can't remember a time when a particular woman's team generated the kind of passion and feedback and anger and resolve and everything that, that changed, I think for a lot of people, a lot of how we viewed women's sports yeah. in this country. And, and you know what, at least, especially for that team, the Canadian women's soccer team, I think was a, a tremendous launch pad mm-hmm. to not only the, you know, the World Cup a couple of years later, but just, uh, you know, more notoriety. 100%. More, yeah, more publicity, more attention to that, that sport, and deservedly so. You know, tremendous uh, group of ladies. 100%. All right, that was number 10. That was number 10. Number 9, I have the 2002 double hockey gold in Salt Lake City. Very, yep, very good one. And was 2002 the year that Haley Wickenheiser claimed that the Americans had been stomping on the Canadian yes. flag? Yeah, you're right. There you yeah. go. There's another one. Okay. Again, we uh, hate the Americans. we got to hate yeah. the Americans to get excited. <laughs> exactly. Uh, number eight, I have Alex Bilodeau winning the first ever gold medal uh, at the Olympics on home soil. Of course, in 76, we didn't win. We also didn't win a gold in 88 in Calgary. Right. Finally, in 2010 in Vancouver, Bilodeau, the uh, downhill uh, uh, mogul skier, uh, gets gold. So I think that's a tremendous uh, achievement. Absolutely. Okay, that was seven. That was seven. Uh, at number six, I no, that was eight. Okay. At number seven, I have Mike Weir winning the O three Masters. That is low. I, I initially had him at number five, but I thought, oh, I don't know, these other two I think are just more All right. more uh, you know nation-building moments. But, I mean, that was a tremendous one in, in, in 2003. At number six, I have the 87 Canada Cup. Gretzky to Lemieux, maybe the best all-time ever final series, that three-game set. Uh, Cops Coliseum, uh, you know, tremendous achievement, another uh, nation-galvanizing moment. Anyone out there driving around right now, if you were in Cops Coliseum, <laughs> honk your horn, just so those around you know what's going on. Just beep it there a few times, all right? Okay, yeah. that is number six. All right, let me throw you, before you get to your top five, okay. let me throw you just a couple here that I have down here as uh, as probably my honorable mentions as well. Um, one of them, and again, it goes back to hating the Americans. I, unfortunately, this is a re- recurring theme. Donovan <laughs> Bailey and Michael Johnson in the 150 yeah. meter at Skydome, which meant... Yeah nothing and yet it meant everything yeah right and and so if donovan bailey had lost that even though it was a nothing race we would have been crushed because we would have had to listen to bob costas talk about how the guy who runs a 200 <laughs> is the fastest man in the world now exactly yeah uh the other one that i put on that list um marilyn bell crossing lake ontario which was an oh, unbelievable yeah. athletic feat and at the time which was way before my time and way before your time this was covered 
like almost nothing else was covered in the Toronto papers when the in the middle of the biggest newspaper wars of all time, Marilyn Bell was an absolute enormous story. So, all right, continue with your top five. We'll see how okay. much we cross over here in the top five. Top five, you know, this is this is when things start to get a little juicy because you can you can rearrange two through five. I think I think number one is solidified, but number five, and it's only happened twice in the history of baseball: the '93 Blue Jays, Joe, Joe Carter. Carter hitting the uh, walk-off game with a series-winning home run, and Bill Mazeroski in 1960 being the only other one with uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, tremendous moment. You know, it's encapsulated in, in, in Canadiana. It's, you know, almost like a fabric of our, uh, of our country, but a phenomenal moment. Uh, number four, another us versus them. The 96 Canadian Olympic relay team wins gold, beating the Americans, who had never lost in the relay up until that point, and, and we wiped them clean. Yeah, yeah, we didn't be. I mean, we. Uh, you may you may have noticed me <laughs> on the Canadian relay team. Atlanta. Yes, uh, Robert Esme to Glenroy Gilbert to. Uh, oh, what's his name? Who's the third one now? The uh, Bruni Surin to Donovan Bailey. That's right. I remember remember uh, Robert Esme had blast off cut into his hair when he took yeah. off the first. Uh, and yeah, they didn't beat the Americans. Like they obliterated the Americans. Yeah. And it was so fantastic. I mean, as much as I imagine the, the Americans used to hate the Soviet Union, I think for a while there, that's in sports anyway, that's how mm-hmm. we felt about the Americans. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, and 96 was in Atlanta, so I mean, on their home soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, I have the 2010 Olympics, the mm-hmm. golden goal, which gave Canada a, still to this day, a record 14 gold medals at a Winter Games. Uh, thank you, Sidney Crosby and, and company. Uh, at number two, I have the 92 Blue Jays being the first uh, and obviously only Canadian winners of the World Series. Uh, another last put out by Joe Carter from Mike Timlin. Uh, and number one, I have the 72 Summit Series and the Paul Henderson goal. Uh, just a couple before I get to my last list here. Phil, by the way, Phil has sent me a whole long list on email. The only one... That we are the two, the two that we have not mentioned: Gaetan Boucher gold medals at the '84 Winter Olympics, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the Ty Cats winning in 1972 at home at Ivor Win in Angela Mosca's last game. And uh, Tavares says the Bernie Ruoff Grey Cup. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not sure those are nation, you know, building. No, they're moments. great. They're certainly great for Hamilton. Of course. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. They were fantastic for Hamilton. I don't know how many people in Saskatchewan go, ah, I just loved that 72 Grey yeah. Cup when Hamilton yeah. won. Uh, also, that should be on the list. I don't know where. Maybe maybe runners-up, maybe in the top few. Percy Williams winning two gold medals in oh, 1928. Yeah. Now, that's so far before any of our time that it's yeah. really hard to... But he was the first, right? He was the first. Yeah. Um, and then... And I had Mike Weir up higher, but here's here's the one that I say that that should be that I would put ahead of Paul Henderson, hmm. and that is only because I just can't think of. I mean, that was a moment that you're right. It every Canadian was watching. It was a moment, like it was a split second moment that every single Canadian was on the same page. But as far as a thing that was a sporting achievement that I put higher is Terry Fox. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. I didn't even think of that. And, uh, I mean, they are different things. One, as I say, one is a split second when the country erupts in joy. Yeah. And the other one is something where you look and you look at the the effect and the residual effect and the runs and the money for cancer and, and what Terry Fox still means to people. I saw, I was talking to someone the other day and we somehow Terry Fox had come up and they say, you know what, every once in a while I'll be seeing something and I will still start to cry. When wow. I think about that, when he came through Hamilton, yeah, and you know, it's it's um, it's it's a remarkable thing that we sort of—I don't want to say we take it for granted, right? But Im- imagine what what would be going on today if we hadn't had that experience and Terry Fox was running across the country today. I mean, we've had a million charity things now, so it kind of it would be watered down a bit. But if it was still the first and it was happening today with social media and everything else, oh my gosh. It's inc- and then you know what? And then if you do that, you've got to throw in at least into the runners-up, Rick Hansen doing his Man in Motion tour yeah. around the world. And even though things went very sour afterwards, Steve Fonio, who ran across the whole country on one leg, yeah. cancer survivor. I mean, it went certainly horrible afterwards with all the trouble he got in. But uh, you know what? That is, um, I don't know how many we went through there. There had to be twenty-five, and Quite I bet you that people. I bet you there's people that could write in with. More than that. I mean, it's it, considering how young, still relatively speaking, the country is and how few people we have, that's a remarkable number of not just big moments, but like legendary moments. 
Yeah. And, and, and a lot of these moments, you remember where you were, who you were with, what you were doing, uh, and, and other, you know, side stories, you know, within those kind of stories. And, and you know, you mentioned the Terry Fox thing, too. But I, I didn't really think of that because, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a competition. It wasn't against no. somebody or something. Uh, it was really against himself and mm. testing himself. But, yeah, the residual effects, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, probably billions upon billions of research dollars up until this point. Uh, yeah, great choice, I think, for number one, no doubt about it. Last thing before I let you go. You, I mean, based on your age and everything, you can't have seen all of these, but of, of anything that you've ever watched, whether it's a national sports moment like we've talked about or a Hamilton one, whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for you, what was the moment when you had the greatest jump up off the couch or whatever it was celebration? What was the moment that really you went, I, that, that was the greatest thing I ever saw? Wow. Uh, It's probably a tie between the 92 Jays, the 93 Jays, and Ben Johnson in 88. I think those are top three interchangeable. Uh, The 92 Jays just happened to be on my birthday. Uh, The 93, I mean, you know, who who doesn't love a walk-off home run to win a World Series? And, you know, Ben Johnson beating not only Carl Lewis, but, you know, getting that that world record in, uh, in 88 and so I think, to me, those are my top top three kind of moment. And what was your best one live? Because you've been to a lot of live stuff. Oh, best one live. Man. Uh, that's a good one. I'd have to really think about that. All right. Uh, it, it would probably be one of the Grey Cups. Maybe even, I don't want to even say the 100th Grey Cup because it wasn't really a great game, but the atmosphere around it, the festival around it was, was pretty enjoyable to watch. Uh, you know what I should have put on this list because my best live one, I think, I think the best live one, I, I'd have to think, again, I'd have to think about this, but um, a couple of years ago, being at the Jose Bautista bat flip game, that seventh oh, inning, yeah. that seventh <laughs> inning would be right up there. Yeah, without a doubt. With uh, with the chaos in, what was it, the fourth inning? Seventh. The seventh. The seventh inning with everything. Yeah, that was, um, but again, you know what, we could do this all night because there's uh, there's so many things i got to run, Rick. But listen, hey, great list, great discussion. Thanks for doing this. Enjoy the rest of your holidays. Thanks. Chop down a few more trees. (laughs) (laughs) Rick Zamperin, 900CHML. You can hear him all the time. Hey, if you didn't write in, if you have something different, or if you want to just tell us, tell me what your best one was, what your favorite one was, Radley at 900CHML.com. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.